You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary to the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 49, The Spanish Civil War, Part 14, Legacy. As always, this podcast is supported by excellent people on Patreon, and I would like to thank Marcus and Andy for joining the ranks of those who have navigated to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members and decided to support the podcast, for which they are provided ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes. Also, as a reminder that I, I have started a merch shop for the podcast, which can be found over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Designs are currently limited, but I am already in discussions with some excellent artists, so there may be some more exciting options soon. On May 19, 1939, a victory parade was held in Madrid, with 120,000 soldiers marching through the streets, celebrating the fact that the Civil War was over. At the end of every Civil War, there are always many questions about the future of the nation, regardless of which side has arrived at victory and Spain was no different. The war had claimed the lives of upwards of 350,000 people, and a half a million more had left the country. In Spain, infrastructure had been destroyed, society was broken, widespread unemployment was ubiquitous due to the economic disruptions of the war. Add on to all of this that just months after the Civil War was over, and far before Spain had healed some of those wounds, the Second World War would begin, and there would be many disruptions that, that would rob Spain of any economic or material assistance from other nations, including those that had been so instrumental in the nationalist victory. Spain would decide to remain neutral in that world war, a decision that we will discuss shortly, and this turned the nation into something of a backwater, with so much focus being placed on other areas of Europe. Another large part of this episode will be the effects that their experiences in Spain would have on the militaries of Europe, both first-hand experience in the case of the Germans, Soviets, and Italians, but also observations of every nation that looked to Spain for clues on the future of war. The Spanish Civil War had long held claim to being some kind of experimental incubator for various military technologies, but I think the other European military powers reacted to the Spanish Civil War as they had so many other smaller wars in the past. Instead of events in Spain causing anyone 
to really question their positions or opinions on military technology and the future of combat, it instead would just be used to reinforce those that already existed, with any deviation from expected outcomes simply being attributed to the nature of fighting in Spain. The easy excuse of fighting in Spain being different than a future European war, while totally valid, prevented any truly revolutionary conclusions from being drawn from the conflict. The result was that the influences of the Spanish Civil War are probably smaller than they could have been, and those influences that did exist were not always correct. The first result of the end of the war, though, was that Franco was in control of Spain. But there was a difference between what that control looked like in the immediate aftermath of the war and what it would later become. Many of Franco's supporters believed that he was just a middle step between the civil war and the reinstatement of the Alphonsine monarchy. And there was also others that simply wanted to oust Franco for their own power. Franco would not ignore any of these groups, and so on August 8th, a new law would be put in place, the law of the head of state, which gave Franco himself the ability to bypass the Council of Ministers or any other limitation on his own personal power. This would technically only come into play in cases of emergency, like, for example, if the nation was in a state of war, but he would do his best to claim that the current time was one of emergency and would remain so until, you know, early 1948. While there were those that would have preferred that Franco not continue to control Spain, there were also many military leaders that were more than happy to allow Franco to take control, and they took other political appointments and were relatively quiet in those appointments. With Franco as the head of the new government, the question that always gets asked is whether or not Franco set up a fascist government. There's a lot of debate here, in the same way that there are questions about whether or not Hitler was a fascist, which all comes back to the exceedingly flimsy definition of fascism. What cannot be disputed was that Franco's dictatorship certainly had some fascist features, like its anti-democratic tendencies and aspects of social control that were central to the government. But then there were other aspects that were less prototypically fascist, like the placement of the Catholic Church in the new government. Other similarities with states like Italy were seen in the aftermath of the Civil War, with Franco having to have his own moment, like Mussolini after the March on Rome, and Hitler during the Night of the Long Knives, where he had to rein in the fascist revolutionaries that had supported him during the Civil War. They wanted to continue the revolution, but Franco was adamant that after the Republic was vanquished and he was in control, no further revolution was required. For obvious reasons, he was in control now. Instead, he wanted to focus on other issues within society and reform them, not revolutionize them, like with the economy, which was a complete disaster. In the year after the war, the economic production levels were below those of 1935, due in no small part to the social dislocation of the war and the damage done to infrastructure. Along with this reduction in economic output, there were all kinds of hidden damages that would have to be addressed. Things like wear and tear on railways and roads that would have to be repaired along with the replacement of rolling stock and vehicles, which had had their lifespans greatly shortened by the events of the war. To make matters worse, the rest of the world was soon at war, and foreign currency was almost non-existent because the Republic had exported almost all the nation's gold reserves. To try and deal with all of these problems, the government introduced a whole host of economic controls. Wages were heavily controlled and would not return to 1931 levels until 1956 with the related complete control of prices to try and make essential items like food available to as many people as possible. 
In such an environment, the black market flourished, with heavy punishments threatened by the government, but those with money able to avoid the worst of any consequences. On the international stage, there was also the debt repayment that had to begin, both to Germany and Italy, which would require a large portion of government revenue until 1943, when payments were halted. Now, obviously, the payments were halted due to the events of the Second World War. And speaking of that World War, we arrive at the question of why Spain did not get involved. Germany and Italy had gotten involved in Spain partially to allow for the creation of another fascist state in the Western Mediterranean in what was a very strategic location. However, when Germany invaded Poland in September 1939, Franco would issue a decree that Spain would remain strictly neutral in the conflict. On October 31st, there was some possibility of this policy changing, in the same way that Italy would join the war after the invasion of France in 1940. But if Spain was going to join in the war, a massive rearmament program was required, and Franco was in favor of such a program, and he envisioned the creation of an army of 150 divisions. There were also some agreements made at this time with Germany to allow the Kriegsmarine to use Spanish ports and territorial waters for U-boat resupply operations. This allowed the ships that were resupplying the U-boats to move in and out of Spanish ports at will, and for German and Italian submarines to watch the Straits of Gibraltar from the relative safety of Spanish waters. With the fall of France and with German troops no longer invading a nation like Poland that was a thousand miles away, Franco changed from neutrality to an official policy of non-belligerency. He would then occupy Tangier, uh, which would even meet and would even meet with the German ambassador to pass a message to Hitler that if the Germans wanted Spain to enter the war, he would make that happen. However, Franco was not going to join the war for free. Instead, he wanted Spanish assistance to be purchased with a sphere of influence that was provided to Spain that encompassed the Western Mediterranean and large areas of North Africa, along with the transition of French North African territories over to Spanish control. Hitler was adamant that Germany would not hand over the requested territory in North Africa, even after Hitler and Franco met in person on the French border. They would still sign an agreement, though, that Franco would enter the war if requested, with Gibraltar being given in compensation, as well as other territory that would be decided at a later date. In December 1940, the idea of using German troops to seize Gibraltar was floated through German high command. This arrived at the point where Franco was informed of the plan, which would necessitate the move of 15 German divisions into Spain. And at this point, Franco got cold feet, out of fear that the British would react by invading and capturing the Spanish Atlantic islands. On February 12, 1941, Franco and Mussolini would meet, with Franco mostly claiming that he was hesitant to enter the war because he was not receiving as many German and Italian weapons that, that he believed were necessary and essential for the Spanish war effort. Along with this hesitancy from Franco, there was also a huge number of payments being made to people within Spain from Britain to try and influence their opinions about entering the war, generally targeting monarchist generals and religious leaders who the British hoped could influence Franco's opinions. While Spain would never enter the war officially, a group of Spanish volunteers, eventually named the Blue Division, would be formed and would be sent to Germany for training. Along with the dispatch of these troops, Franco made a speech that seemed to very clearly link Spanish interests with those of Germany, which was taken so seriously in London at the time that Operation Pilgrim, which was the invasion of the Canary Islands, was prepared. 
By the time that Operation Torch was launched and the Allies invaded North Africa, the tide in the Mediterranean had obviously turned and Franco completely shifted his public position, calling for an agreement with the Allies to defend Western civilizations from the Soviets. Then in November 1943, the Blue Division was disbanded and Spain returned to an official policy of neutrality. This very fluid international position, where Spain was mostly just trying to get in good with whoever was doing best at the time, would characterize Spanish foreign policy into the Cold War. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. One of the topics that always gets discussed in relation to the Spanish Civil War, and often is the only part of the Spanish Civil War that gets mentioned when discussing the Second World War, is the influence that events in Spain would have on European militaries. To peek behind the curtain a bit here, when I put the Spanish Civil War on the list of topics to discuss for the podcast, it was there from the very beginning. It was almost entirely to answer the question of how events in Spain altered European military views. Now, as my research progressed, the answer became in some ways very clear, and in other ways a bit more muddled. The problem with all conversations around what lessons were learned from events in Spain, and then what changes were made based on those lessons, is that each nation and each person within those nations treated the events differently. Most importantly, there was always a serious tendency to deduce exactly what each person analyzing the fighting wanted to see out of the events. The exact facts about the fighting were often pretty flimsy and sparse, and at times even outright incorrect, and this allowed each observer to fit the facts that they had learned into their own preconceived ideas. Many observers would also discount even correct information that disagreed with their ideas based on the idea that fighting was happening in Spain and the people using the weapons and equipment in Spain could not be trusted and that the fighting in Spain was simply different than what fighting would be in a European-wide war because of whatever reasons they decided to use, 
Although oddly enough, when facts supported their cases, you don't hear these complaints about how it was happening in Spain. Now, even with all of these caveats, there were still events in Spain that would shift how certain weapon systems were viewed and how they would develop in the years that followed. To attack this topic, we need to look at some specific examples of technology and theory that would be used in Spain and sort of look at them individually. And we'll start with tanks. The Russians, Germans, and Italians would all send hundreds of tanks to Spain, and they would send some of their absolute latest and greatest designs. Spain would be the first conflict since 1918 in which there were major armored forces, and there had been a ton of development both on the technical and theoretical sides of the equation in the 20 years after 1918. The number one outcome of all this fighting was that the machine gun armed light tank, which had been built by many European militaries due to how cheap and easy it was to produce, was seen as horribly outdated and extremely vulnerable in any situation in which it might come in contact with other tanks. This was mostly due to the fact that the real star of the show in Spain had been the Russian T-26. It would be the most widely produced tank in the world during the 1930s and would prove to be a great counter to the German Panzer I and the light Italian tanks that were, the only, ar- that were only armed with machine guns. There were certain problems with the T-26. It had light armor. It was incredibly vulnerable to anti-tank guns, but when it came to dishing out damage, it was seen as far better than anything that the Germans and Italians would send to Spain. It was so dominant that the nationalists had to turn to weapons that were not even designed for anti-tank use to counter it, which would result in the 88mm anti-tank gun being used in the anti-tank role for the first time near Madrid. Those 88mm guns would go on to play a huge anti-tank role during the Second World War. These events were important to the overall development of armor theory in Europe, and especially in some specific technical aspects of their design. Due to the industrial capacity available to many nations at a time before full-blown rearmament was started, cheap and easy had been prioritized over other aspects. This resulted in light tanks being the primary fighting vehicle of many armies. They were easy to manufacture, and the hope was that their speed would be able to make up for their other deficiencies. However, events in Spain had provided armor theorists who had advocated for larger tanks, like JFC Fuller in Britain, to say that they had obviously been proven correct. Or to quote Fuller, quote, The three types of tanks that I have seen in Spain, Italian, German, and Russian, are not the result of tactical study, but are merely cheap mass production. From the standpoint of mechanization, but to now, this war has proved my opinion that the light tank is absolutely no combat machine. End quote. Now, while this provided some individuals the ability to gloat about being correct, in many ways, such conclusions just accelerated already existing trends within armor development. The light tanks were generally seen as a stepping stone to something larger. Machine guns were seen as a stopgap while more complex armament was created. Events in Spain accelerated the transition away from these items, but did not cause that transition in the first place. Other problems around armored warfare that were experienced by all forces in Spain were generally ignored, even though they were known shortcomings that had been clearly showcased time and time again. One of the major ones would be armor coordination with supporting infantry, which had vexed armor advocates since 1916, really. In this area would come some of the harshest critics of the Spanish infantry who had been tasked with working with tank units. Both the Germans and the Soviets would place the blame on the poor coordination squarely on that Spanish infantry, who they believed were poorly trained. They were an easy place to put the blame, and both Germans and Soviets would claim that such poor performance would not be seen in their better trained, 
Wehrmacht, and Red Army. While this was true in some ways, by just writing off the problems so readily, it meant that those problems still did exist between infantry and armor, which had been seen in Spain, and they would not be properly addressed until the Second World War. While there were broad lessons learned by various groups, there was also first-hand experience in the Spanish Civil War, especially among Germans and Soviets, which would provide them with experiences that would allow for some very specific changes to their armies that would influence what would happen during the Second World War. On the Soviet side, there were alterations to Russian tank design. For example, the vulnerability of the Soviet tanks like the T-26 to anti-tank guns and artillery would cause a much greater emphasis on armor to be accelerated, which would be seen in future designs like the KV-1 and the T-34. There would also be changes made to, that would not have a positive outcome. It's sort of a, a wrong lesson learned for Spain, from Spain. For example, Dmitry Pavlov, who would command many of the largest Republican armor attacks during the Civil War, would be a strong believer in the dispersion of armored strength with an emphasis on close support for the infantry. He would use his experiences in Spain to back up these beliefs, and he would eventually be able to completely shift Soviet armor theory which in the end would prove to be disastrous when faced with the more concentrated German approach to armor deployment. On the German side, there was a strong tendency to downplay events in Spain, under the assumption that whatever lessons could be learned from Spain were tainted by the unique scenarios in which the armor was placed. This idea that it was difficult to pull conclusions from Spain because of a set of conditions found there was present in both German and Soviet understanding of the war, as well as in other nations that were trying to draw third-hand conclusions from events. One of the easiest examples of this among armor theorists was the claim that there were not enough tanks present uh, in Spain when the fighting started, and, and they were only inserted into the war after the stalemate had already sort of occurred. Tanks were being designed specifically to prevent that stalemate from coming into play in a European conflict, and so the claim was that adding them to the mix later produced results that would not be replicated in later conflicts. These types of various kind of dubious bits of logic, which drew upon sort of undemonstrated success to prove the impossibility of the specific failure that was seen in Spain, would reduce the influence of fighting in Spain. One area that I've not mentioned so far was the air war, and here there were many very good lessons learned. For example, both the Germans and the Soviets would see the success of ground support aircraft in Spain, and this would cause them to put far more resources into that close air support mission uh, than some of the other air forces around Europe. They were both able to improve their overall tactics and coordination with events on the ground as well, and it will also spur technological innovations for future aircraft generations. Also, in relation to the air war, there were incorrect conclusions like the idea that bombers could operate effectively over enemy territory without being escorted by fighter aircraft. This would be true for some of the fighting over Spain because the bombers involved were often faster or on par with the fighter aircraft that were available to intercept. Unfortunately for bomber crews during the early years of the Second World War, they would not have the advantage over the next generation of fighter aircraft, which would begin appearing in the last years of peace which would have disastrous consequences for bombing crews during the first couple years of the Second World War. Just in general, part of the idea for Spain being incredibly influential on European militaries, and especially the German military, was due to the fact that during and after the Second World War, there would be a lot of emphasis placed on trying to determine why the German military 
was so incredibly successful during the first two years of the Second World War. Their experiences in Spain seemed to be a likely culprit. The search for answers is understandable and important, but it has resulted in a general overstatement of the influence that experiences in Spain would have on the German military. It helped in some very specific ways, but it also hurt in others. And overall, it did not completely alter the course of European military innovation, the course for which was set before the Spanish Civil War even began. Back in Spain, for the people who lived there, the events of the Spanish Civil War were felt much more strongly, and whatever influence they would have on future wars was far less of a concern than the impact it had on their daily lives at the moment. They had to live with the aftermath of the Civil War, and for those who had fought on or were in any way associated with the Republican war effort, this meant living in a perpetual state of fear for years after the conflict was over. Anyone who might be labeled as red was seen as the enemy and was at risk of being arrested and detained. Who might be labeled red? Well, here's Helen Graham in the Spanish Civil War 1936-2003, The Return of Republican Memory, who would have this to say about that definition. Quote, In post-war Spain, red came to mean whoever the rebel victors chose as a means of removing either their lives or their civil rights. End quote. It was applied to all sorts of different people in, in both rural and urban settings of every kind of background. A system of military courts was used to try those accused of wrongdoings, and with the country being under martial law during the war and then up until 1948, the sentences could be very harsh. There was also a huge amount of regional variance when it came to the verdicts in cases and the sentences that were applied, which would only really become more standardized after the war ended. Labor battalions and other military support work was a likely destination for prisoners of war, at least during the war, then after they transitioned into labor camps. These camps were based around tasks, anywhere from large construction projects to coal mining. For women who were arrested, they risked having their children taken from them, with those children sent to Francoist re-education camps with the goal of breaking their connection with the previous generation. There were also many that were just outright executed although the precise number of that is unknown. This all resulted in tens of thousands of prisoners being kept after the war, even after many were released from prison after the fall of the Republic. Executions would then continue on a smaller scale after the war. The eventual number for prisoners executed after the war was over is maybe around 50,000, although there are some discussions about that number being too low. Spain's relations with other nations would be very fluid during the Second World War, as we previously discussed, but through all of it, Franco would remain in power, and would remain until his death in 1975. During this time, his government would pass through several stages, mostly adapting to the international environment in which Spain found itself. This meant that in 1945, most of these fascist-inspired features of the Franco dictatorship had to be jettisoned to appease the new powers in control of Europe which would result in the official pardon of political prisoners that were still being held due to the events of the Civil War. This was just one of many efforts to ensure that good relations were kept with the Western democracies after the Second World War, especially with the United States. Franco would find these nations receptive to welcoming Spain into the international agreements that would be built during the Cold War, with few able to question Franco's anti-communist credentials. Through all of this, it would not be until April 1948 that Franco would officially end the state of war that Spain had been in since the start of the Civil War in 1936, 12 years before. 
Many events during the Civil War and after would only begin to come to light after 1975. And even after that date, there were, in some cases still are, many questions about events during and after the war. Most of those revolve around the oppression experienced by people within Spain, many of which would simply disappear. Answers to their fate are still trying to be found today. Thank you for listening to this episode of History of the Second World War, and for listening to the entire series on the Spanish Civil War. I hope you will join me next episode, as our story will transition to Asia, as we look at how the Second Sino-Japanese War began, a time that some might claim is when the Second World War, in general, started. Goodbye, Piccadilly.